weren't here last week, we closed the books on Paul's second missionary journey. We see him go on three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, arguably four if you count his trip to Rome at the end of the book. But coming back to that second journey, we're talking about a journey filled with a crazy highlight reel, a highlight reel for the ages, you might say. And in that regard, it's not unlike Paul's first missionary journey. Just as a sort of recap, if you, if you weren't around um, or if you were, just as a reminder, that first missionary journey included all kinds of crazy things. You had the conversion of Sergius Paulus, the most noble official on the island of Cyprus. You had the striking blind of Elymas the magician who tried to stand in the way of the advancement of the gospel. You had Paul's preaching in the Jewish synagogues, reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus is the promised Messiah, which we continue to see Paul do as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. We saw the, the healing of the lame man in Lustra, the same city where Paul was nearly stoned to death. And ultimately, we saw the planting and strengthening of churches throughout the province of Galatia as the nations were exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's second missionary journey, again, it included its own unique highlight reel. You had things like the adding of Timothy to Paul's missionary team, the same Timothy who would go on to pastor the church in Ephesus. You had the core group gathering of a new church plant in the city of Philippi, the very first Christian church on European soil. You had the proclamation of the gospel in the marketplace of Athens as Paul's heart was filled with both righteous indignation and brokenhearted compassion as he looked out on a city filled with idols. Not to mention, going back to last week, we saw Paul, uh, God's kindness to Paul in Corinth, meeting him right in the midst of his discouragement and fear, strengthening him with incredible promises so that he might persevere in his calling to continue to point people to Jesus. The turnaround between Paul's second and third missionary journeys is pretty quick. In fact, if you go back to last week, chapter 18, verse 22, closes the books on the second journey, and the very next verse, verse 23, opens the books on the third journey. Notice chapter 18, verse 23, it says, after spending some time there, that is Paul's home base of Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul begins his third missionary journey on much of the same mapped out path as the last one that he went on. You can see the map behind me where Paul begins up in the kind of top right in Antioch and works his way through in the green to Iconium and Lustra and Derby, places that he's been before, and eventually we'll get there this morning. He works his way into Asia, into Ephesus, and some of the surrounding areas where uh, we see churches planted that Jesus will eventually write to in Revelation chapters two and three, the church in Smyrna and Sardis and Thyatira and Philadelphia and so on, and eventually he's gonna make his way back to some of the places that he went on I uh, went to on his last journey, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and Corinth, and, and will ultimately work his way back to Jerusalem. It's a, it's a lengthy journey. It's a wild ride, just like the first two that he's been on. As you can Im imagine, as you can see, Paul travels to places that he's been before, which means that he's not only planting churches on this third missionary journey, but he's seeking to strengthen the churches that have already been planted one of the main differences between this third journey that you see up on the screen and the one before it is the focus on Ephesus. And that's where we're gonna be for the next couple weeks at least. Paul stops to spend significant time in Ephesus on the outbound part of this third journey. But before he gets there, we're told, chapter 18, verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, here's what we know about Apollos. You see Apollos again in 1 Corinthians as Paul writes to the the Corinthian church who's divided. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Peter. Some, I follow Apollos. And then some who are just completely anti-authoritarian say, I follow Jesus and I don't follow any sort of human leadership. Well, this is the meeting of, of Apollos, one of the future leaders of the church in Corinth. He's from one of the great intellectual epicenters of Egypt. Alexandria was home to one of the, the largest and greatest, most significant libraries in all of the ancient world. So Apollos likely has some formal education that, that rivals the best of his day. Well-versed in his understanding of the Old Testament, coupled with this polished and persuasive ability to communicate. He's one of those guys that you go, that dude's gotta get saved because we need to use him for kingdom work. What we, what we don't know with certainty is whether or not he shows up in Ephesus a Christian. There's a great deal of, of debate with this passage that we're in this morning and not a lot of consensus with respect to that question. Some argue that, that he was a disciple of John and not of Jesus. Others argue that he was in fact a true believer yet lacking some, some things in terms of understanding Christ fully, maybe among those Old Testament men and women of the faith who were saved just like you and me by faith alone in, in trusting in the promised Messiah to come, but, but perhaps he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah having come, which would certainly help to explain the shift in his teaching between verses 25 and 28. Notice verse 25, he begins teaching things concerning Jesus, which doesn't mean that he's necessarily using the name of Jesus, could very well mean the shadows of the Old Testament that point to Jesus, like the temple and the sacrificial system, the priesthood and so forth. But then we see in verse 28, he's, he's now teaching that the Christ was Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of their, those very shadows. This is no doubt one of the most challenging passages in all the book of Acts. Regardless of where you land on Apollos, he eventually makes his way to Corinth to minister there as a believer, greatly helping other believers there as well as evangelizing the Jews, watering what Paul had planted, to use the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. The, the thing that stands out to me in these verses as it pertains to, to application for us Notice the courage and humility of all three people involved in this particular section of this morning's passage. On the one hand, humility would warrant that we put ourselves in Apollo's shoes, who was likely more formally educated than Priscilla and Aquila, yet open to instruction. And so the the question runs through my mind for myself and for all of us here this morning, are we willing to receive theological instruction and correction? Or do we believe that we've graduated beyond that? Are we open to others in the church helping us to understand the way of God more accurately? On the other hand, 
If humility would warrant that we put ourselves in Apollo's shoes, courage would warrant that we put ourselves in Priscilla and Aquila's shoes, who could have very easily shied away from the opportunity to instruct Apollo's. The other question runs through my mind, are we willing to approach others when we hear things that are biblically inaccurate or incomplete, to engage where we're convicted that we see error? Imagine for a second if Priscilla and Aquila would have pushed the opportunity aside, what might Apollos have taught others for years to come? But notice in that that they're not out to embarrass Apollos either. Rather, they have the wisdom to pull him aside in the proper environment to engage in this dialogue. There's so much in these verses pertaining to discipleship that we could glean. And speaking of discipleship, it seems as though Apollos might have already established a few disciples of his own in Ephesus. Look at verses one through seven of chapter 19. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Again, similar question to Apollos. Are these men Christians prior to their encounter with the Apostle Paul? Similar to the views of scholars as it pertains to Apollos, uh, scholars are very divided, again, on this one as well. Some argue that they were, like Apollos, disciples of John, but not Jesus, and that Paul points them to the one that John himself was pointing people to, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Others argue that they were true believers, yet lacking some things in understanding Jesus fully. Again, Paul asks in verse two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So there's belief. But he also says, verse four, John told people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. You've already believed, now believe. Again, maybe trusting in the coming Messiah perhaps, but lacking the knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah having come. I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite ready to publish my commentary on these verses, if I'm quite honest with you. There, there are way too many nuanced aspects of the argument that, that I've got my own questions about, but we can say this is certainly a unique moment in redemptive history, can we not? In which you have the, the overlap of Old Testament faith in the Messiah who is to come and also the Messiah having come in the person of Jesus Christ. In the present, we don't, we don't have anything like that. We don't first have faith in a Messiah that we're waiting to, to enter into human history, followed by later learning that Jesus is the Messiah, having come and lived the sinless life that we couldn't live and died our death and risen from the grave. We're on the, the other side of the story of Acts in that regard. And so I'll just leave you to speculate, speculate within your community groups on what to do with that. Perhaps more fascinating is where the story goes as we move on in this morning's passage, where we're told that 
In the wake of Apollos leaving for Corinth, Paul shows up in Ephesus. What we know about Ephesus, a few things, we don't have time to unpack everything as it pertains to this city. We know that Ephesus was a coastal port city at the cusp of both the Aegean and the Mediterranean seas. It was unique in that regard, accessible to both Greeks and Romans in terms of trade and commerce. It was known as the uh, metropolis of Asia. In fact, it was the most important political center in Asia at the time, population of roughly a quarter million, which would Uh, match it up to the population today of Fayette and Coweta counties combined, which makes it weird for me to say the next thing, which is that it was the New York City of its day. It was the the Tokyo of its day. It was the Paris of its day. Had a theater that could hold more than 24,000 people, filled with temples dedicated to Roman emperors like Claudius, Augustus, and Julius Caesar, filled with people who practiced magic arts all over the place, home to the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, believe it or not, a temple that brought people from all over the known world into worship, which helps to make sense of why Paul would later go on to write to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesus was a dark place. And it's here in this epicenter of magic arts and pagan ritual that we're told, verse eight of chapter 19 of Acts, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is Jesus, before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, we're told, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's amazing. Both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. We know that if you fast forward the book of Acts to chapter 20, verse 31, that Paul spends roughly three years in the city of Ephesus. He starts in the Jewish synagogue as he's been known to do in every city. It's a pattern that we've grown accustomed to seeing with Paul. When the Jews reject the gospel, which is also a pattern we see in the book of Acts, Paul moves to the market square, to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, the place where people would come to hear professors, orators, poets, people like that. And yet we're also told, Acts chapter 20, verse 20, that Paul also went from house to house sharing the gospel. Church buildings, college campuses, local Starbucks, show up at your front door. Like, it doesn't matter with the Apostle Paul. He just wants as many people as possible to meet Jesus. And so we're told within two years, with that kind of strategy, that every resident of Asia, I don't know if that's hyperbole or not, but every resident of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The gospel explodes onto the scene and numerous churches are birthed, as I mentioned earlier, including the seven churches referenced in Revelation chapters two and three. 
No doubt the proclamation of the gospel, the word of the gospel being spoken is front and center in this massive spread of Christianity, but it certainly doesn't hurt that signs and wonders continue to corroborate the apostles' testimony about Jesus, that this is crazy. God is is doing such a powerful work through the apostle Paul that when he blows his nose, people are grabbing the tissue and are then taking it to their sickly family members who experience healing upon touching not the apostle Paul, but his used Kleenex. That's what's going down in Acts chapter 19. Give me some of that, right? Who doesn't want that? Signs and wonders continue to corroborate the apostle's testimony about Jesus It's all about evidencing the truth of the gospel, really. And it catches the attention of a particularly intriguing group of men. In verse 13, one of the most humorous passages in all the book of Acts says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, And we're told that seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. All right, so picture this in your mind, family business, a bunch of brothers get together. Hey, you you guys wanna go into business together? Yeah, what what are you thinking? I don't know. I was thinking maybe a traveling exorcism show. Like maybe we could do like a, I don't know, a Cirque du Soleil of demon expulsion. What do you guys think? These guys are all itinerant Jewish exorcists and they've seen Paul's used Kleenexes healing people and driving out demons and they decide we gotta get in on that action, which we've seen before in the book of Acts, right? Remember Simon the magician back in Acts chapter eight who was so dazzled by the the visible display of the Holy Spirit's power that he tried to buy that power for himself, didn't work out too well for him caught up in the signs and wonders, yet failing to see the Jesus to whom the signs and wonders all point. These itinerant Jewish exorcists are looking to use Christ and his spirit to make a name for themselves. So they find a crowd of demon-possessed people, apparently that wasn't too hard to find in the city of Ephesus, and they command the demons to leave using the name of Jesus to make their requests. Verse 15 tells us, but the evil spirit answered them, with Jesus I know, Paul, I recognize, who are you? Hey, we've heard of Jesus. He's kind of a big deal. The apostle Paul, he's kind of killing the buzz of the entire province of Asia these days. But seven sons of Sceva, eh, doesn't ring a bell. Like, you you can just picture these guys handing out their Cirque du Soleil business card. Like, we work really hard on this, like a little kid with a lemonade stand sign, you know? Like, we've really worked to, to try to make this something And if that's not funny enough, it gets better. Verse 16 tells us, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Like, tell me that's not making it on Channel 2 Action News. You can just picture, Wendy, I'm on the scene at the house in which it all went down. Seven itinerant Jewish exorcists entered the home of a man believed to be possessed by demons. According to witness, the the men appeared to be pretty confident going in. They worked very hard on their business card. Next thing you know, all seven of them are running frantically through the front yard, completely naked and wounded. We, We don't know what happened in there, but whatever it was, it was strong enough to knock the underpants right off of these guys. Like, that's the story here in Acts chapter 17. Don't tell me the Bible is not interesting. 
That's what happens, maybe not one for one, but bigger, broad thinking. That's what happens when you attempt to use Jesus to make your name great. It doesn't work out well. Rather than bending your knee to him in glad submission and participating in the building of his beautiful, glorious kingdom, your story ends with nakedness and shame. Kind of like the nakedness and shame that we see going back to the garden in Genesis chapter three with our first parents. That those who live for their own kingdom and glory will one day stand before God ashamed and exposed. It's the exact opposite of what happens to those who embrace Jesus for who he truly is. Their story ends clothed in his righteousness and unashamed before their maker. Verse 17 goes on to tell us, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. You think? Like, you'd have to have hibernated in a cave to have missed that one, right? And we're told that fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice that it's not the names of any of the seven sons of Sceva who end up being extolled. We don't even know any of them by name, but rather it's the name of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus wins. And as we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts, where Jesus is received and extolled, individuals and communities begin to look drastically different. In this case, we see people confessing and repenting publicly, turning in mass from occult practices in the wake of this great awakening, burning their magic art books in a citywide bonfire to the tune of, of what would be the equivalent in today's economy of roughly $6 million worth of books, right? You can sell those on Amazon, make a little money, right? They're going, no. We don't want this to continue to spread. This is wicked. So they give up $6 million worth of inventory in the name of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We could, leave, we could leave it there and simply chalk it up to another of the many moments in the book of Acts where we see the gospel do its transforming work. But, but here's the thing about the story of Ephesus. It's very unique something in these verses that I don't want us to miss this morning because you heard me allude to it before. In the book of Revelation, particularly chapters two and three, Jesus offers strong words of both encouragement and rebuke to seven different churches. And one of the churches that make up that list is the church of Ephesus. Roughly 40 years after the events of Acts chapter 19, Jesus gives a window into the transpiring events of this church in her history. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter two, Jesus commends them for three things. Revelation two, verses two and three. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. All right, so number one, Jesus commends them for their laboring. 40 years later, they haven't grown lethargic or consumeristic in their mentality toward the church. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty for the sake of the gospel. 
Secondly, Jesus commends them for their doctrinal purity. For 40 years in the making, they're now a theological juggernaut, able to sniff out false teaching from a mile away, competent in sound Christian doctrine. Thirdly, Jesus commends them for their patient endurance. 40 years later, they haven't given in to the cultural pressures of Ephesus to conform. They're enduring ridicule. They're enduring in the faithful worship of the triune God in a land filled with all kinds of false deities. You might think to yourself, who wouldn't wanna be a part of that church? Right? Most everyone is sacrificially laboring. Everyone's on a serving team, getting their hands dirty. Most everyone is theologically sound, biblically literate, able to discern truth from lies. And most everyone is persevering in the midst of ridicule and idol worship. There's a lot to be commended with respect to this church that we see planted in Acts chapter 19. If only Jesus's letter to the church in Ephesus ended there. We're told, coming back to Revelation 2, Verses four and five, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus 40 years later, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying you can be a persevering hardworking theological powerhouse and be missing it as the church. This I have against you. You know all the right stuff. You check all the right boxes, yet you've abandoned the love you had at first. He says, if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'll remove your light-bearing impact on the world. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but we know that that happened in Ephesus because of the presence of Christianity moving forward out of the, the story of Revelation 2 and 3. It says, I'll continue to save as I continue to author this great story of redemption, but it won't be through you. Many of us have seen this happen to churches with our own eyes, right? Once a light, now no impact for the kingdom, maybe not even around anymore, a church that once was. What's so fascinating to me about Acts chapter 19 is that it gives us a window into first love. Certainly not a, a complete picture, but a piece of it. It's not to say that what Jesus was writing about in Revelation chapter two has to do exactly with what we see in Acts chapter 19, but certainly the things we see that are right and good and honoring to the Lord, we can call a, a, a part of, of the recipe of first love coming back to Acts chapter 19. What, what did the saints of Ephesus love doing as the gospel was planted there in Paul's day? Three things that I, I think are worth pointing out coming back to verses 17 through 19 of this morning's passage. Number one, there was a magnifying the name of Jesus with Wakened affections. Verse 17, fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It's difficult to magnify a Jesus whom we don't have a feeling sense is magnificent, isn't it? It's difficult to declare great a Jesus who we don't have a feeling sense is great. The core group of the church in Ephesus experiences the power and glory of the risen Jesus and it invokes them at a heart level to worship him, and a stirring of affection for him. If you're a Christian, when you encountered the beauty and wonder of the person and work of Jesus for the first time, my guess is that it caused you to magnify his name, 
Make much of him from the depths of your affections, that your affections were stirred for this Jesus whom you had a collision with for the first time in your life. Apparently, the church in Ephesus, planted here in Acts chapter 19, would go on to experience a deadly shift over the course of time. That by the time we get to Revelation 2, the church is more in love with, and hear this, the church is more in love with doctrines of Jesus than the Jesus of doctrines. Doctrinal truth is always meant to lead to an extolling of the Lord. Affection set ablaze for Christ. Secondly, we see a confessing of sin and unbelief. Verse 18, also many of those, it says, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. There's a transparency that cannot be divorced from first love. I've said this before we live in a land here in the American South of spiritual onions, you might say. You gotta peel back layer after layer after layer to get to the, the real person underneath in the midst of a culture in which people have been conditioned, even encouraged to keep up religious pretenses. And, and I would argue, uh, or, or I, let me say this way, I'm becoming increasingly more convinced that more and more people are getting tired of living that way. And, and here's evidence of it. Going back to just a week ago, if you were around last Sunday, uh, or if you listened in on the po- podcast, you, you heard um, a fairly raw, honest um, uh, message from your preaching pastor. As I shared with you, 2018, and some of the difficulties associated with that and the feeling pummeled by wave after wave and, and how, do you, how do you brace for the next one in a way that's honoring to the Lord and what does it look like to see the gospel speak into our fear and disheartenment? In the wake of that sermon, four to five times the number of people who normally engage me after a sermon made sure to get time with me, whether it was face-to-face or through an email or a text message to say that that was significant for me. Thank you for, for that honest moment. The church needs more of that. I need more of that. And maybe that resonates with you. Maybe that's part of what you like about Cross Point Peachtree City. I like the fact that we, we haven't perfected it. We still hide at times, but we're seeking to move toward getting away from that veneer of religiosity, and I like that. According to the story of Christianity taking root in Ephesus, when you meet the real Jesus, he frees you to confess your sin and unbelief, to set aside the the living of the fake plastic life. When you meet the real Jesus, he frees you to acknowledge that you're not okay in areas of your life where you're not okay. The gospel frees us from that exhausting work of trying to manage our reputation day in and day out, from clawing to to maintain our manufactured, fabricated identity. just, Just look at what these new believers in Ephesus are confessing. It's not, I shouldn't have yelled at the kids last night, right? Rather, it's, I shouldn't have cast a demonic spell on Timmy the other day. Like, that wasn't good, right? I shouldn't have worshiped a pagan fertility god. What was I thinking, And that's not to say that we shouldn't confess when we yell at our kids too, right? Extolling and confessing are both weaved into this tapestry of first love. When we see Jesus for who he truly is and our affections are stirred for him, it frees us to come out of hiding and be a more confessional people. And and it works both ways because the the more we confess and, and see in our confessing that we're not condemned for it, the more our affections become stirred for Christ in wonder of his grace. 
Thirdly, we see a repenting of sin, a fighting for holiness. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That according to the story of Christianity taking root in Ephesus, when you meet the real Jesus, you declare war on sin. Compelled by the, the indwelling spirit of God not to trample on the blood of Christ, our great savior. That, that first love involves not just basking in the glory of Jesus and confessing sin, but also putting sin to death by God's grace and the power of the spirit at work within us. That it involves fixing our eyes on Jesus and thinking about him until our affections for lesser things are, are replaced by affections for Christ. I would argue that we have a unique opportunity this morning not only to take note of a, a powerful work of God in the first century spread of the gospel, but also to see the evidences of first love and, and to sit with the questions, is, is Jesus calling you back to the love that you had at first? Maybe you come in this morning and go, man, I, I remember what it was like, my Acts chapter 19 moment when the gospel showed up in my life and and. I was forever changed and my, my heart was awakened to the glories of Christ. But these days I feel like Revelation 2. I feel like that version of Ephesus. I feel like I've abandoned the love I had at first. Is he calling you back to the awakened affections you once had for him? Is he calling you back to the transparent life of confession that you once weren't so afraid of? Is he calling you back to the vicious and passionate fight for holiness that you've lost sight of? Let me attempt, by God's grace and the power of his spirit, in closing this morning, to stir up the affections of first love in this room. And I wanna do that by way of a contrast in this morning's passage. If you look at Acts chapter 19, and I alluded to this earlier, you see a contrast between the work of the Holy Spirit and a spirit of evil. So that with the spirit of evil, you get language of verse 16, being mastered, being overpowered, naked and wounded, that kind of language. With the spirit of God, you get the language of verse 12, diseases leaving people, spirits coming out of them. You get the language of verses 17 through 19, Jesus being extolled, people confessing their practices, burning their books, do you see in the words up on that screen the contrast between the bad news and the good news? Between the power of the devil and the effects of sin on the one hand and the power of the spirit and the effects of salvation on the other hand? I mean, immediately my mind just starts racing. The language of being mastered and overpowered takes me to Romans 6 where Paul declares that, that those who are in Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer under sin's dominion, Christian. Our only master is Jesus Christ himself, who has redeemed us from the shackles of sin and filled us with his holy, mighty spirit that we have the power to burn our books, so to speak. They don't own any of us who are in Christ. The language of nakedness takes us again all the way back to the garden 
The place where sin left our first parents naked and ashamed before God. The place where God's grace was evidenced in his providing animal skins to cover Adam and Eve in their shame. We, we know that what happened in the garden was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus who would hang naked and ashamed on a Roman splintered wooden cross as our sin bearer. And even more amazing, that Jesus would not only bear our sins, but clothe us in his righteousness so that we might stand before God no longer exposed and ashamed, but robed and dignified. Isn't that good news? The language of woundedness reminds us of Isaiah 53, which tells us that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his wounds, you and I are healed. That Jesus heals the broken. He heals those wounded by their own sin and the sins of others against them. He's a great healer. The language of disease is leaving people and spirits coming out of them. It reminds us that Jesus came to do away with the sickness and evil of this world. See it over and over again in the gospel accounts, right? Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons. The inauguration of a kingdom that he will one day return to consummate. That there's coming a day when Jesus will do away with sickness and evil forever never to be seen again, never to be experienced again. The, the language of Jesus extolled reminds us that Jesus is not only the one true savior, but also the one true king. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins, he calls us to bend our knee in glad submission to him, and he's a worthy king of that bended knee. The language of confessing and divulging practices, that reminds us that the devil wants nothing more than for us to be lonely, Going back to last week, for us to isolate ourselves when things get hard, bearing the burdens of our struggles alone. Jesus, on the other hand, frees us from a life of hiding and isolation. And we can step out of the darkness and confess our sins to him and one another, and we will not be condemned for it because he was condemned in our place. The cross has already outed you, brother, sister, and me too. If you're not a Christian, when you sit in this place with us this morning, my prayer for you is, is that your heart becomes enthralled with the first love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And that his wondrous love, evidenced by the cross and the empty tomb, fills your heart with first love toward him. And, and here's, the, here's the intriguing thing. If you are a Christian, I pray the same thing for you just for the hundredth or thousandth or ten thousandth time. I pray that Jesus enthralls you with the first love that he has for you yet again and that his wondrous love fills your heart yet again with first love toward him. And that what would all the more be evident in and through this church individually and collectively as a result would be a magnifying of Jesus with wakened affections, a culture of honesty and confession, a commitment to violently fighting against sin together. And that the result would be that Jesus would all the more be glorified and that the joy would be yours and mine.